can be seated. Children, you are dismissed. I want to say thank you to all of you who have been praying for our new, the newest addition to our family, whose name is Simon. Yes, he's a cat, okay? We love Simon. He gets into anything and everything possible, but we still love him. And uh, he left about three and a half days ago. And so we're just, pra- we're just praying and asking you to join us in prayer that Simon comes home, okay? I mean, it truly, is that not God's heart for us? That when we wander from him, that his heart is that we return? Because God's love knows no end. Amen. Well, we have been looking at this series concerning global awakening. The Send has sent out a charge uh, to the body of Christ. To my understanding, it is global, and uh, their appeal anyway, and that is that for the next 40 days, starting March 1st to April the 9th, that the collective body of Christ, yes, worldwide, prays for a global awakening. Now, America has experienced pocket revivals ever since its birth, and I would venture to say even before its birth, we experienced the first great awakening, and then in the early 1800s, the second great awakening, And we are learning from Scripture that God has another, what I might call a final awakening in store. And it's not just for America, church. We are are seeing that all nations will stream to his holy mountain. And we realized that if this holy mountain is simply one little dot on a map called Jerusalem, I mean, to what degree will the body of Christ experience that? That indeed, Daniel is right when he says the rock was hewn out of the mountain, it crushed the feet of the statue, and it became a huge mountain that did what? It filled the earth. Last week, we looked at the yeast and how that yeast leavens the entire lump. Now, to some degree, and and I don't know what degree that is, but the kingdom of God, the sons and daughters of the kingdom, the kingdom of God will impact, and that's this concept of leavening, that is what yeast does, is it not? It impacts, it, it affects the entire dough, not just little pieces or areas or lumps here and there. Have you ever made a loaf of bread and it rose in three or four or five different places and you see, now my pizza does that, okay, but you don't make dough that, you don't make bread that way, no, because the yeast leavens the entire lump. Now, to what extent the kingdom of God is going to do that, Scripture is not clear. It's not clear either on when this will happen. But our prayer and the, the, what the send is asking is, guys, let's pray that it is this generation. Let's pray that we do not have to be like Moses standing on Mount Nebo and only looking to the promised land, but as Joshua, as the Joshua generation, We get to move into that promise. The promises of God are for us. So we are praying, God, bring this global revival in our day. Let the kingdom of God impact. It is not just, as I mentioned, the gospel being preached to all the nations, then the end will come. But it is the gospel of the kingdom that impacts People are receiving the kingdom of, they're receiving the gospel. It's impacting, it's changing them. And this is the entire lump of dough. This is the world. The world will be impacted by the gospel of the kingdom of God. Now, I want us to reflect for just a moment and remind us that Isaiah 9, 7 says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. We are not going to look at a decline, as some believe, down the road in the kingdom of God. No, of the increase, not decrease, increase of his kingdom and peace. And I want to emphasize, you can hear it in my voice, I hope. Peace, of the increase of his kingdom and peace, there will be no end. Zechariah, we realized in chapter 9, verse 10, it's referring to Jesus coming on his donkey. He says he will proclaim peace 
to the nations. We gird on or fit our shoes with the gospel of peace. And Isaiah 11.10 says that knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth even as the waters cover the seas. And we saw that the first word in that promise was the word for. That means because. That means whatever happened in that verse, the earth being filled with the knowledge, not just the know-how, not just the facts, but knowing the Lord. That when the earth is that the when the earth is filled with this knowledge as the waters cover the seas, then whatever is described before is going to happen. Do you remember what he describes before that? It says the wolf will live with the lamb. And we see this picture of peace. Where is that? On God's holy mountain, in God's kingdom that will impact the world, impact the entire lump of dough. And so what I want us to look at today is this concept of the gospel of peace, of unity. And I think we're going to find here, and I'm going to diagram this because if we're not careful, we can kind of get a little lost. But I think if I put it up here, you're going to see it a little bit more clearly. Church, if we are going to experience, if our generation is going to experience global awakening, and, and forgive me, but I am making just a little bit of distinguishing between revival and awakening, and I mentioned to you two weeks ago, is because generally speaking, not the Bible, but generally speaking in the church, when we're talking about revival as opposed to awakening, revival is what happens in the church, and awakening is then what happens in the world because the church has been revived. The church has been restored. The church has been grown up into the new man, as it says. And so this then impacts the, the world. Now, we have seen this with every revival. We don't just see it in the word. We see it in every revival. That when the church is revived, that's when the Spirit of God moves and many come to Christ. This just happens. But here's my caution. Listen to me. Last week, Galatians 3.5, I said this. Please don't make the mistake of formulizing awakening or revival. And I, I, I will use this term revival and awakening sometimes interchangeably, meaning global impact with the church and with the world. So I hope I don't confuse you if I do that. But we realize that many times when we want God to do miracles in our midst, when we want a spirit to be poured out, and this is the context of Galatians 3, 5, we build formulas. Well, if I just do steps one, two, three, four, and five, then God is going to do this. And, and we bind God to these five, this five-step process. And so what we're going to discover is that God does not follow our formulized plans. You can also put it this way. They are not just, the word formulize is formal lies. It is a lie to believe that if I pray four hours a day, God will bring revival. I believe it would be awesome to pray for four hours. But God, by his grace, is what's going to bring about awakening. It's not because, wow, I'm looking down at Mike Curtis, prayed four hours a day, good for you. I'm going to bring global revival. It's not going to happen that way. But I invite you to pray, because if the church doesn't pray, revival will not come. Now, I hope that doesn't confuse you. If you don't evangelize, awakening will not come. If we do not bring, and we're going to talk about unity, peace today, if there's no unity in the body of Christ, revival and awakening will not come. But these are not formulas. These are not things, that, well, if I do this, then God will do this. We're going to put God on the hook. That's not good. God doesn't do that. God loves to surprise you. God loves to say, okay, now I'm going to do something amazing. And after we've done our formulas, many times God says, mm, no, I don't think so. And it's like, wow, God, but we have done this, that, and the other thing. And you, where are you? So here's what I'm saying. As we go through these things, what does God want to see produced in his church? Let's be careful. We are not formulating a formula. We are not saying just, just do steps one, two, three, four, five, and six, and voila, out of the oven comes this baked loaf of bread. The leaven has leavened, and there's world awakening. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. 
So today, I want you to turn right now to John chapter 17. Many, many years ago, one of my brothers lost his 21-year-old son. I'm not going to get into the whole story. Most of you know the story. But in essence, he got drunk on his birthday. He crashed into a tree and he died. It was absolutely tragic. There was so much hurt in my brother's life when this happened and in his wife. But they made a mistake. And in my family that I grew up in, the enemy came in and brought complete disunity. Bitterness, anger, rage, even finger pointing, blame that should not have been there. And my brother became so bitter. He, he began blaming people in my family for certain things that were simple oversights. But you see, he was so filled with hurt and anger. And I'm sure much of it towards God, much of it towards the person that got his son drunk or led him to get drunk. That decision on my brother's son's part, that, that was his decision to do that. No one forced him. But my brother became so angry and so bitter. That young man that took him to the bar lived down the street. My brother and my sister got in his crosshairs, and for years he held a grudge against them. It took him over 10 years to finally lay that bitterness down and apologize to some degree anyway and say, you know what, I just want to have peace. Now, I'm mentioning this because God wants to bring peace into your relationships. For God to move through things, he is going to want to see something happen in our hearts. As we read John 17, we're going to see this amazing picture, and we're going to need to dig into some elements of this amazing picture for God to not just speak truth to my heart, but to begin to open that heart and say, wow. Maybe the sermon this morning that Pastor Mike's talking about speaks to me, and, and this is something I need to do, and, and God may need to lay us and cut us open and be able to say, okay, Mike, whoever, this is for you. So you there in John 17, we're going to start, we're just going to read a few verses. John 17, 22 and 23. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer, as many call it. And he is praying for his bride and his bride-to-be, those who have yet to come, future generations. And as he's praying for them, this is what he says, starting with verse 22, I have given them, referring to his disciples I have, and those who believe in him, I have given them the glory that you have given me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Now, I'm reading from the NIV. I'm going to read those two verses again. And then I'm going to diagram it. And then I'm going to read it again because I want us, there is a Greek word, it's called hina, and it's trans, literally translated so that. And we're going to see cause and effect relationships. This happens so that this happens so that this happens. And again, let's be careful. We're not putting together a formula. Well, if I do this and I do this and I do this, then God will do this. God is inviting us into this amazing unity and he will bring global revival. Well, let's see that. I'm going to reread it, and I am going to insert these words so that, so that you can see it. I have given them the glory that you gave me 
so that they may be one as we are, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity, so that the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Let me see if I can diagram this. First of all, we see the Father's glory. It says it was given to Jesus. And what did Jesus say he did with that glory? He gave it to us. Yes, okay? And, and I'm going to word it this way, and I'm not being blasphemous, because we're going to need to unwrap this. You'll see what I'm going to get at. I'm going to word it this way, our glory. God's glory will rest upon us. The Father's glory rested upon Jesus. Jesus' glory rested upon us. And I'm, I'm just wording it. The Father's glory brings about Jesus' glory, which brings about our glory. That is, God's glory resting upon us. Jesus gave his glory to his son. His son gave his glory to us so that, now here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, this right here is the cause and effect, so that, okay, by us, by God's glory resting upon us, and we, we need to understand this, and I'm going to get to it, but what is going to be the result? The result is that we are, we, the body of Christ, are going to become one even as the Father and the Son are one. So I'm going to just word it this way. I'm going to use the word unity. I have been using the word peace. That's fine. But we are one. We are one. The body of Christ is one. And when we become one, it is so that we experience, what's the next thing? It's not just oneness. It is complete or perfect oneness. So um, I like the way the NIV translates it. It's fine. It says complete unity. I'm going to encourage you to write this down. So that, what's the last thing that he says is going to happen? So that, it says here, the world will know that you, you're praying to his father, you sent me and that you, father, have loved them. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna put it this way. Um, so that we know, and I'm gonna put that in quotes because I'm just gonna, speak to us for a second, so that we know that the Father sent Jesus and, and the Father loves them. That is the world. Here's, what, here's something interesting. John loves to use this word know. Young adults, when we were talking about in John 8, they sh as disciples, we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. Hollywood loves to quote that. Let me rephrase it. Hollywood loves to misquote that or misunderstand that. So that if you tell the truth, you'll be free. That's not what that verse means. Come on. Do it justice by knowing the truth. He is talking about, and he used, a, he used that word abide or continuing to hunker down and to grasp the roots of truth, to embrace truth. That's what this word know means in this context. It's not know it up here. I grew up in a very traditional church, and we quoted the Apostles' Creed every Sunday. Nothing wrong with that. But we weren't speaking it to know it here, we did it so that it would, speaking that truth would get down into our spirit. But if we're not careful, anything that's tradition, anything that we do over and over, same thing over and over, can become, we can kind of become numb to. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about grasping the facts. 
he is talking about knowing Jesus, the Father sent his son. And to, to say, to Father, that, that you sent me, when you send someone, fill in the blank. There's a purpose, right? When, when you send someone, you send them for a reason. So when he's talking about that we will know that the Father sent Jesus, well, to send him to do what? To die for your sins, to be resurrected and bring life to us. The world is going to know this. They're not going to know about it. He's not saying they're all going to gather and recite a creed, but that they're going to know it, that they're going to know this truth that will set them free. That is the result of this complete unity. This is global revival, church. or This is, revi- this is awakening. This is the, the world may know this, embrace it, be filled with it, that the yeast leavens the entire lump. Okay? So I want us to go back now. Oh, lastly, and that the Father loves them. Not just some simple truth that we recite, Jesus loves me, this I know, but that Jesus loves me. Man, that's the love that I want to know. The world will. So let's look at this now. Here's my question to you. What glory did Jesus receive from the Father? Because he says in the very beginning, if you look at verse 2 there, do that. He says, glorify me with the glory I had in the beginning with you. So he begins with this concept of glory. Now we encounter this concept of glory again. And John just doesn't introduce this concept of glory kind of willy-nilly and, you know, I'll just talk about it. He's already introduced us to this. By now, if you've read through, if you were reading, if we were reading through the Gospel of John in one sitting, okay, we probably would have had to start much earlier this morning, but we will have already have known what Jesus meant when he said, the Father's glory rested on me, okay? Just very quickly, look at this, John 7, 39. Turn there, John 7, 39. We're talking almost, you know, nine, ten chapters earlier. Hopefully, by the time we would get into John 17, we'll remember what he said back in John 7, but he said this in John 7, 39. By this, he meant that the Spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. And when was the Spirit received? It was on Pentecost, wasn't it? That Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus was raised from the dead. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been, what? Glorified. So Jesus was going to be glorified before Pentecost. Now turn over to John 12. And in John 12, and, and I'm going through this because this is key. And if we get this, I mean, we, we hear sermons about unity and peace, blah, blah, blah. And we're going to touch on that. But sometimes we miss, why isn't there more of it? I think we're going to discover that with this. All right? Matter of fact, if we grasp, I'm going to promise you that when you grasp this, you are going to experience far greater peace in your home. That's how significant this truth is that we're about to share with. I'm about to share with you right now. Okay, so in John chapter 12, starting with verse 23, Jesus replies. I'm not going to get into the the context. Forgive me. You can do that, but he says, "The hour has come." For the Son of Man to be glorified. All right, that's not going to happen at the end of the year. I mean, it will, but the glory he's talking about here is right. It's about to happen. Jesus is kind of antsy here. The hour is here now. He's not talking about in the next 60 minutes. The hour means the time right now. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That Son of Man is Jesus. Jesus is going to be glorified. Verse 24, listen to this. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates this life 
His life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Let's just let's kind of unwrap that a little bit. And by the way, if we were to turn back to verse 16, he says it. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this when he was entering to Jerusalem on the donkey. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. We know that that happened. They realized it when Jesus, listen now, when Jesus had been crucified and risen from the dead. You see that. When was Jesus glorified? When did the Father's glory rest upon Jesus? Yes, while he was doing miracles, it revealed his glory. John 2 tells us this. But when was he glorified? At the cross and his resurrection. Church, Jesus was glorified. The Father received incredible glory when Jesus died. When Jesus hung on the cross, That means that the angels were glorifying the Father. The Father's glory was resting on Jesus. The crucifixion, the very, how can I say, the epitome of displayed evil in this world, the Son of God being killed, brought God the most glory. Then, of course, Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, he says... When he talks about being glorified, he says, guys, don't you get it? Let me give you an agricultural illustration. See, a seed, how many of you love to plant seeds and watch them grow? You like doing that? You like watering them, fertilizing them, pulling the weeds, and then pulling more weeds, and then pulling more weeds. Do you like that? I, I, I I don't think I enjoy the weed pulling too much, but I love to just watch them grow. And if it's, if it's a plant like, I don't know, maybe a tomato plant, you see it growing, and then you see the, the flowers, they're starting to bloom, and it's like a time of rejoicing. Yay! Because you know what's going to happen. You're going to get this big, awesomely ripe, delicious, juicy tomato. And so you've seen it from a seed growing up, and now the flower and the fruit is produced. But if you don't pick it in time, and the, cre- the, the animals get to it, that fruit will fall to the ground with all its seeds in it, and those seeds will die. Just like that seed that you planted dies, that now produces this fruit that's filled with seeds, those seeds fall to the ground. Eventually, they die, and then next spring, a new tomato plant or tomato plants. And so the point is this. The seed has to die, and then an amazing thing happens. You probably learned it in biology. That seed, the kernel, cracks open, and life comes forth. Jesus is the kernel that falls into the ground. He springs up with life, his resurrection. For what purpose? To reproduce more seeds. So here is what Jesus is saying. The Father, when I die and am resurrected, the Father's glory will rest upon me. And my purpose right now is to give you that very same glory. That you you will be one of those seeds in that tomato uh, fruit, that that, that tomato that falls to the ground, you're going to be one of those seeds and you will die and you will then come to life to produce more seeds. This is the glory of God. God looks down from heaven and he rejoices over this. But church, inherent in this is suffering. For Jesus to be truly glorified He had to suffer and then be raised. I'm going to suggest to you that this, what happens right here, the Father's glory resting upon Jesus at the cross and crucifixion, that glory is now coming to us that we die and we come to life so that 
There is unity in the body of Christ. Now, I, I don't want this to sound like, okay, da, 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 yeah, nice little facts. Let's just write those down. Let's move on, Pastor, please. Let's get this. Because my brother could not experience unity in our extended home. And there was no unity in his home either. It was bitterness instead. You know what needed to happen to my brother? My brother needed to die. Now, I don't mean physically, all right? This is on tape. I do not mean my brother needed to die physically. But in my brother's heart, that person needed to die. Jesus worded it this way. You want to be my disciple? Awesome. You want my glory to rest on you? Awesome. Here's what you got to do. Deny self. Take up your cross and then follow me. You've got to die. You have to surrender to Jesus Christ as a lost sinner, hopeless, without God. And by our own choice, we have rejected him, whether we understood it that way or not. We were his enemies, and we, Mike Curtis, needed to die. And then by God's grace, he needed to resurrect a new Mike Curtis, the seed now coming to life. And my whole goal is to produce more seeds. And this is God's glory. That something that God has, this glory that God has imparted to me is now impacting those around me. That now becomes my life purpose. Now, that is significant. We're going to come back to that because for most Christians, that is not their life purpose. They go through the, the formulized prayer and voila, I'm a Christian and I've been water baptized and they live no differently than before they became a Christian. And I'm going to suggest maybe just maybe they failed to die. And they failed to be raised in newness of life. Jesus used this term being born again. New creatures in Christ. That's what happens. Now, I'm going to say this, that what I've just shared with you right here will impact us so that now Mike Curtis can live in unity with other people. So here's my question. Why isn't there more unity in your home? Oh, pastor, you've gone from preaching to meddling now. Why isn't there more peace in your life? Why doesn't Jesus' glory shine through your life in this death and resurrection process more? Why isn't the seed falling into the ground, dying and being raised to new life and producing more of what Jesus has produced in me? I'm at peace with the Father, so why is it that peace does not come and imp from me and impact other people? Why is there disunity? Why is there argumentation? Why is there a lack of love and a desire to sacrifice? Because when we get that, we're going to become, we're going to, yeah, I spelled that one wrong, didn't I? Hang on a second. <sighs> I feel so much better now. Whew, I, something was just wrong in my spirit, church. Okay, anyway, I'm, I'm joking here. We then begin to experience complete unity. So why am I not living in that type of unity? Now, I could just simply say, well, I just need to sacrifice more, and there's truth in that, but here's where I think this really comes down to. Give me a second as I find my place. I preached way ahead of myself here. Okay. What motivates you then to sacrifice? Because I'm going to suggest this, that there is not peace in your home. It's because there's not sacrifice in your life or not enough of it. I believe God wants to produce that peace through your life. I believe, forgive me if this sounds corny, but I believe that the lifeblood of Jesus needs to course through these veins to bring more life in me and into other people in my home. 
And when that doesn't happen, we call it a what? A heart attack, a clogged artery, that there is cholesterol. Forgive me this, but there's spiritual cholesterol. It's blocking the artery. The lifeblood of Jesus is not flowing through me. And as a result, there's anger and there's argumentation and bitterness and you name it. There's division in the people in my life. Why? Because they're all wrong? No, because Mike, something's wrong in Mike Curtis's life. There's a clogged artery, there's spiritual cholesterol, there's something blocking it. Now, I'm going to suggest something here to us. Why isn't there more unity in your home? Why isn't this glory that's supposed to be resting, manifesting more, and instead all I'm seeing is all this arguing and anger? Can you look at John 12, 31 and 32? And I'm going to read this, and you're going to step back, and you're going to scratch your head and say, What? How is this the answer? Be patient with me, but look at this. John 12, 30, 31 says, now is the time. I just read from earlier in John, so this is segueing. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Great, now we're talking about judgment. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up, now he's not talking about praise and worship here in that 1970s, lift Jesus higher, lift Jesus higher, lift him up for the world. That, that's in worship, yes, but this lifting up is not that. This lifting up is the cross. Even as Jesus raised up the bronze serpent in the desert, people looked to him and were healed. People, people looked to Jesus, they believe in him and they're healed. Okay, so this lifting up is the cross. He says this, but I, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. So here's my question. Now, just follow me here. Look at this verse. Every, all, all eyes right here. Don't look at me right now. Look at this verse. Now is the time for judgment. Some of you are looking at me. Now, now is the time for judgment. Now is the cross. How does the cross bring judgment? And Pastor Mike, how is that so utterly significant to me learning to die and bring forth peace and unity and love amongst others? Listen to this. If you committed what you believe to be a very petty crime and the police came and arrested you and threw you into jail, and after some weeks, you finally appeared before the judge. And after he reviewed it, he said, you will need to, the fine is either life or punishment will either be life in prison or you will be fined, listen to this, $10 billion. Wait, 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 judge, this is a petty crime. And he looks at his books and he says, excuse me, Mike, your name, Mike, that's not what my book says. The crime you committed, life imprisonment or a fine of $10 billion. Now listen to this. When Jesus, God himself, died on the cross for your sins, that's equivalent to a payment in this illustration of $10 billion. What does that now say about your crime? Is it really a petty crime? Or is it a crime of such substance you deserve to die yourself? Or come up with $10 billion that you will never, anybody here have a job in which within your lifetime you'll earn $10 billion? How about 10 lifetimes? Probably not. It is a debt you will never be able to pay off. Jesus stepped in by the cross, and he paid that. So how is it that Jesus' death, when he says now, the crucifixion time has come, now is time for judgment? It's because the world has been hanging in the balance, and it's saying, this is a petty crime. My sins, they're all petty. They're, you know, what big dish wave, wave your magic wand, God, and forgive me. And God is saying, you don't understand something here. 
These are not petty crimes. I have to sacrifice the cost of my very son to pay just for your sins. Now, I'm not preaching this so that you walk out of here with gloom and doom and judgment and this weight of condemnation. Because that's not what the cross does. It highlights the seriousness of our sin, yes, but it paid for them. It paid for them. So, so how do you live the rest of your life? Here's what Mo Chris, and, and listen to this. Oh, church, if you get what I'm about to tell you right now, this is going to set you free. I guarantee it, money back guaranteed. If you put money in the offering plate, I, okay, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> I'm going to tell you this. Yeah, yikes. (laughs) I don't have that authority, sorry. So what was my point again? (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) What motivates us? What motivates me to live this life that's laid down, that denies self, takes up my cross and follows him? Not my agenda, not Mike Curtis's purpose or goals, it's him. What motivates you to do this? You know what most people are going to say? Listen, church, man, look how much he loved me for the rest of my life. I mean, Jesus deserves this. I'm going to pay him back. Is that how you live your life? I'm going to pay him back. After all, Romans 12.1 says, in view of God's mercies, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So I am by my sacrifice paying Jesus back. Let me answer that question for you. Actually, those of you who are in my life group this past Wednesday, you already know the answer. In Luke 14, he gives us a parable. And he tells his servants that at this great banquet, he says, go out And then tell everybody that I've invited to come in. And they all gave excuse. So they don't want to come. They've given all of these excuses. Apparently, my banquet's not that important to them. Then here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to, give me just a moment here. I want you to go to the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And I want you to invite them. I'm going to read that list to you again, because this list describes you. That's what Jesus' point was. I'm going to describe you guys right now, well, at least the, the people that you're going to reach. These are the poor. They're the crippled. They're the lame. The, uh, sorry, they're the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the very reason why Jesus gave this parable, he set them up. I didn't read this verse to you. He said, you know what, when you sit down, and, or whether when you throw a banquet, he says, invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame, because, listen church, they will not be able to pay you back. So what am I saying? Jesus called you because you were either poor, you were crippled, you were blind, or you were lame, and you could never pay him back. So what are we thinking? Okay, God, in view of the cross, I'm going to pay you back. No, you're not. I'm sorry, do you have $10 billion? Will you ever have 10? I don't care if you live 10 times. I'm not preaching reincarnation right now. You understand my illustration. You will never be able to pay $10 billion back, ever. Jesus called you. By his grace, because you can't pay him back. So where does that leave me? What is my motivation now? If I can't pay him back, and so Christians either try to pay Jesus back, and by doing that, they step into this treadmill of performance, like that little hamster going with all those little tiny feet as fast as they can, and then they, one of two things happens. They either get exhausted and step off, or they get so exhausted, the, and I've seen this, this happen. I saw this happen with a cat. He was on this little <laughs> treadmill, and boom, he just shot off it like a rocket because he couldn't keep up, and it just threw him. And it, that's what happens to Christians. And it's like, God, where are you? Look at all I did for you. 
and this is how you're going to treat me? Yeah, church, that, I'm trying to help you. Trying to help us. That can't be our motive. It can't be our attitude or mindset. I am not trying to pay God back. The result then is many Christians, they either go that route and try and pay God back, or they just kick back and they have no comprehension or so very little comprehension of God's love for them. And that cost of the cross. Can I ask you this? Let me, let me ask you the question in the, in the context of a, what actually happened in my life. One Christmas, I was so excited, and as I was looking at all the presents, I realized, all, and there were four brothers and one sister, so six kids. Some of you met my sister, by the way. Isn't she amazing? I love my sister. She's absolutely amazing. I love her with all my heart. My sister got more presents than, than me that Christmas. And my oldest brother got more presents than me that Christmas. And my brother Dan and Rob and my younger brother got more presents than me that Christmas. And I'm like, what's going on? The last gift is passed out. Wow. Did I ever get the short end of the stick with on this Christmas? I'm starting to feel a little rejected here. Okay. I just happened last year. So I was, no, it didn't. <laughs> so I was a little kid. And then my dad looked at me, and I was just feeling so much rejection. And he said, Michael, we have a little something for you. Oh, did my eyes go, <laughs> a little something? I hope it's a big something. So he leads me down into the basement. I'm wondering, what are you leading me into the basement for, Dad? <laughs> you know, that's where we torture people, right? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That's okay. So I'm going down the stairs into the basement, and my dad has this blanket over something here. It's about three or four feet off the ground. And he says, Michael, I want you to pull the blanket off. And I pull the blanket off. And church, it was the most amazing bicycle that God ever created. <laughs> he had to create this one, it was too cool. It was one of those stingrays with the banana seed and the high-rise in the back, right? And it had a little, you know, place to put your jug of water. Now, this was novel idea back in my day when I was a little kid. But you, almost every bicycle, 10-speed, would have mountain bike. You see these little containers to put your bottle of water on, right? Well, that was new back then. I looked at that and says, man, I am going places. I'm gonna, I planned a trip that day. I'm going to go on a long trip so I can use that bottle of water. And so... You know what I did next? I did not reach into my wallet and say, Dad, thank you so much. How much did that cost again now? Let me pay you back. I didn't do that. But that's what we do as Christians. God, thank you so much. Let me pay you back. And God said, really? Let me remind you, you were poor. You were crippled. You were blind. You were lame. You were my enemy, and I purchased you for my very own. And I'm sorry, you want to pay me back? Church, after that day, my dad and I were like this. <laughs> okay. you know, biblically, 1 John 4, 7, uh, let me get that passage right. 1 John 4, I'm sorry. I have the verse down here somewhere, 417, 419, 419. We love because he first loved us. It doesn't say we love to pay him back. He just loved us. And in loving me as an unbeliever, as someone who is poor, crippled, blind, and lame, unable to pay him back, he loved me. He bought me. I was his very own. And God did something in my heart. And it didn't stop there. Because I began to experience this love in the midst of, within six months in my life, I viewed it as tragedy. I broke cartilage in my knee. God just said, Mike, you love sports? I think you're loving it too much. You want to grow? You want to become more like my son Jesus? I'm going to take that from you right now. Man, did that hurt. 
I tried going back into sports and wrestling and pff, running. It was horrible. It was embarrassing. That's what God had to do. And he showed me his love in the midst of all of that. And he began speaking to me, Mike, I've just got something better for you. Can you trust me? Can you trust my love? All things work together for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I love him. What, to pay him back? No. God, I just love you because you first loved me. His love. Not just at my conversion so that I now, like a seed, fell into the ground and died to Mike Curtis and was raised in Christ, a new person, so that I have peace with others. But church, what's going to bring us to this complete unity is when we do that every day. And when God's glory, imagine that. When this understanding of God's love and not us trying to pay him back, but just winning my heart and building this amazing relationship with an invisible God, I am impacted and won regularly by this display of his love in my life. And I just want Something is different in me, and I want to sacrifice and lay my life down for others. Okay, so I've preached about two-thirds of my sermon right now. And we're going to need to look at this next week. Because there is a pathway now in this concept of complete unity that we need to walk and we are going to constantly be looking back to that seed that fell into the ground and died and came to life again. And you're going to discover what your purpose is and that purpose is going to change. Well, let me just, you're going to be changed so that your purpose is going to be changed. And that concept and understanding of your purpose will change you every day. Every day. So that when you're in the context of your home, you're not going to find yourself wanting to defend yourself and argue with your spouse. And I'll get into this a little bit more next week, but in the early part of my marriage with my wife, maybe even more than half of it to three quarters of it, we, we argued. Not, maybe not every day, but we argued. And it was like, God, so when are you going to change my wife? And my wife was thinking, so God, when are you going to change Mike? And as we began to, you know, argue with the Lord, who's going to change, when are you going to change the other person? God had to just speak something so simple to us. And we just, we just woke up one day and said, wow, what, what did God do here? We don't argue like we used to. I want to share that with you. I want you to be able to experience, and just so you know, at times, and our children can bear witness to this, we still do argue. Nothing like we used to. What happened? And it's not because I became perfect, because this guy is not perfect. It is not because I am a pastor, so of course God's obligated to do this. No. But because I began to discover some truths I'm going to share with you next week, that when we discover these, it's, I'm going to guarantee you it's going to change the way you you see life, the, the way you live life, it's going to change the peace in your home if you put this into practice by the grace of God. That's where we're going. So I'm going to leave you with this. Number one, have you died? And has Jesus raised you up in newness of life? And if he has done that, did you die this morning? and yesterday morning and the day before so that God would produce something? Do you live your life as a laid-out sacrifice? Because that is when God's glory rests on you. That, church, is your calling. Jesus' purpose of coming to, that, to the earth was to die so that he would be raised. Church, your purpose in life, whoo, get a load of this. It's to die every day. Woohoo! 
is so that he can raise you in newness of life, so that you are empowered by his glory and grace to be that yeast, the sons of the kingdom that bring peace and unity and love and sacrifice throughout this world. That is what he has called you to. Can you stand with me? A lot has been shared this morning. I realize that. But can you walk away with this simple truth? As the kernel falls to the ground, this this kernel of truth that I'm sharing with you falls into your heart. As you as well fall to the ground as that kernel, you need to die. And when you truly die, allow the Spirit to revive you again, to live forever. Father, would you do that? Father, thank you for all of us gathered here who have chosen to follow you. And and something died in us, that, that old me died as I said, Jesus, I can't do this on my own. And I surrender to you. I believe in you. Wash me of this sin. Rescue me from my sin. It holds me a prisoner and I cannot escape. And the weight of guilt weighs so heavy on my shoulders. Father, thank you that when we cried out to you, you revived me again. And if there are any here this morning who have never done that, who have never cried out to you, Jesus, come and rescue me. And by the sacrifice on the cross for my sins, now wash their sins away and revive me again, Jesus. Raise me up to be a new person. God, would you call people now to that decision if they have never chosen to follow you? And for the rest of us, God, revive us again. I lay my life down. necessary death in me every day and raise me up new in Jesus every day. Revive us again, God. Revive your church today in this generation, God. To pursue you, we must die. Help us, Lord. There's something in me it wants to hold on down. I'm wearied by trying and trying and I have been trying to pay you back. Forgive us, God. And just let your love break through all that weariness, that discouragement, that sense of hopelessness that hangs on us like dirt, like a cloud that follows us. Breathe that life and that truth of your love into our spirits again and win our hearts and revive us again. Church, can you just, if if that's you, if you're just saying, God, revive me again, can you just lift your hands to him? Just like a little child. Pick me up, Daddy. Pick me up. Lift your hands and say, God, I need to receive from you today. God, I am asking, pour out a revelation of your love that will grasp us and grip us and change us forever, and win our hearts and just totally undo us so that you, God, will be able to live through Mike Curtis every single day. God, I just speak to all of those lies again. I 
we have been believing this past week. And we're setting it aside. And we will grasp a hold of this one truth. God so loved the world. Me. That if I believe in